Welcome back to Banjo's Drinks and Drinking Gourds, How America Culture Came to Be, the podcast of the Frontier Culture Museum of Virginia. I'm Alex. And I'm Rachel. Today we're talking about the rise of the novel. Now, most people love to read, or at least they claim so on their dating app profiles. But that wasn't always the case. In the majority of history, the printed word had restricted access, and those who were granted access weren't exactly spoiled for choice. But what was the path that led to the novel? What were the predecessors for that beach read you may have squirreled away for guilt-free pleasure reading on vacation this summer? Well, actually, the story doesn't start with the printed word at all. The story actually begins with the oral traditions of prehistory. We talk a lot about oral histories at the museum, with the most recent being the Eastern Woodland Indian traditions. We also reference the griots of the Empire of Mali, the storytelling record keepers. What we don't really talk about, however, are the similar oral bardic traditions found in every pre-literate human society. In our Europe context, we have the Viking sagas and the Irish bards as examples. Yes, bardic literature is eventually written down and fairly early, but the initial stories and poems were passed by word of mouth and until recorded. The Viking sagas, for example, were recorded in Iceland in the 13th century. Beowulf is another excellent example of a story that spread far from its origination and bled into many other similar stories. The Irish or Celtic bards are also continued as an Iron Age around 8000 BCE to 43 CE tradition of record keeping, lineage tracking and poetic creation. Basically, think any sort of medieval-esque fantasy game or show, like Yaskier and the Witcher. It's not all body songs and entertainment. A lot of that entertainment actually had a lesson. To steal a quote from Merida, legends are lessons, which perfectly explains the long duration of the bards of Europe. Even once the printed word began to proliferate, usually transcribed by hand by monks or scribes, the general population remained illiterate, so bards continued to play a significant role into the later medieval period. Which brings us to our next development, the medieval romance. This is the chivalric romance developed in the 12th through the 14th centuries in Europe. Marie de France was a popular 12th century author of romances, both literally and figuratively. Her texts often focused on the love between a lord and lady, or the loss thereof, as her chevrefois, translated as honeysuckle, which recounted the tragedy of Tristan and Isolde. The beginning of Marie's recounting perfectly encapsulates the idea of perfect courtly love. Many times I've had the chance to hear or read the old romance of Tristan and the queen who were so true to love and to each other, and who for their love were sorely tried until on a single day they died. Tristan by King Mark's command was exiled back to his own land. When furious the king had seen the love he bore Isolde the queen, he stayed in South Wales for a year, and all that time did not appear at court, but then in his despair, he couldn't bring himself to care. What might happen if he went back? It was better to risk death than lack. The one thing that counted in his eyes, this shouldn't cause anyone surprise. A lover grieves and broods that way, if he is true and far away, from the lady who has won his heart. Tristan and Isolde's story is part of the larger body of Arthurian legends, or a blending of an earlier story folded into the Arthurian mythos. The Arthurian legends are, of course, the most well-known of all medieval romances, which took many forms over the period. The earliest were basically adventure stories meant to excite an audience on a chilly winter evening around the fire. The later versions were the ones more familiar today, where the chivalric ideal was embedded, along with the tendency to make Christian allegories. Chivalric romances espouse standards of knightly conduct, especially the idea of courtly love. That in which the knights strove to be true to the code of honor to prove themselves true to their lady and obeys their every command even to the death. Think Lancelot and Guinevere. Lancelot was popularized by Chrétien de Troyes' Lancelot or the Knight of the Cart in 1177. 
but there seems to be a lot of overlap between Lancelot and Gawain's characters as the best and most loyal knight in the 12th century. Sir Gawain was touted as such by Geoffrey of Monmouth's earlier History of the Kings of Britain in 1136, which, despite being called a history, was pretty much a work of fiction. The most well-known and most rebooted of Gawain remains Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, published in 1370, where the ideals of chivalry and knighthood were fairly plainly laid out and tested in similar ways to Lancelot trials over his love for Guinevere. Thomas Mallory's Mort de Tour followed a century later and reiterated Detroit's image of Lancelot's failure to stay true to his oaths to his king and allowing his love for Guinevere to be put before everything else, but also expanded the earlier story to include the little fact that their affair pretty much leads directly to the downfall of Camelot and Arthur's death. I definitely call that a hard-hitting moralistic story about not coveting your neighbors, or in this case, your king's wife. Given the propensity for books and poems to be transcribed by monks or learned church people, it's no wonder that the most popular and widely transcribed tales had a bit of underlying Christian doctrine. Every author knows you have to please your publisher to keep getting printed. Of course, the print and press shortly changed everything. Gutenberg's press, developed around 1450, allowed for an explosion of published works. From a few thousand books totaled before the press, there were over 9 million books by 1500. The printers were now the publishers. So while bias and agenda still existed, there was often someone out there who would publish anything an author cared to write. The first printer to print in English was William Caxton, much later than the rest of the European languages. His translation of the Recule, Recollections of the History of Troy in 1474, continued the popularity of medieval romances, as the fall of Troy was often romanticized and recreated into a more familiar chivalric version with Paris and Helen as the epitome of doomly courtly love. Tellen, his other English printed books included Canterbury Tales and Mallory's King Arthur. Obviously, the public's love of romances, doomed or not, continued. Aesop Fables was also printed by Caxton, with moralizing tales easily digest by children to provide them some social ground rules. The inclusion of Chancellor's Canterbury Tales, however, indicated a come and see change back to adventure stories and a growing interest in body tales. There were more than 90 copies printed by 1500, which is an incredible amount for the number of presses and costs of books. Chancellor worked a fine line between appealing to the common man and the supposedly more moralistic bent of the aristocracy who pretty much controlled his purse springs. The balance between the knight's tale and the miller's tale, for example, demonstrated the difference between the lofty but unattainable ideas of romance and chivalry and the more lowbrow but entertaining body everyday stories of life in general. The prologue to the miller's tale explains the juxtaposition between the two tales. Quote, when the knight has thus told his tale, in all the company there was no one young nor old who did not say it was a noble story and worthy to draw into memory, and especially the gentlefolk. Everyone, the host then begs anyone except the drunken miller to tell his tale. However, quote, what more shall I say but this miller, he would not refrain from speaking for any man, but his troll tale in his manner. I regret that I must repeat it here, and therefore every respectable person, I pray, for God's love think not that I speak out of evil intention, but because I must repent all their tales, be they better or worse, or else I must falsify some of my material. And therefore, whoever does not want to hear it, turn over the leaf and choose another tale. 
where he shall find enough of every sort of historical matter that concerns nobility, and also morality and holiness. Blame not me if you choose amiss. The miller is a troll, you know this well, so was the reeve, and also many others. And rivalry they told both of the two. Think about this, and don't blame me, and also people should not take a joke too seriously." End quote. This pretty much demonstrates the difference in taste between the increase in popularity of more vulgar but believable stories of everyday life and the noble but definitely more fiction stories of courtly love. The Crown itself took an interest in control over the book trade as it started to attempt to censor or called, quote, naughty printed books, quote, around 1538. This introductory, a system of requiring a license for printing or selling a book written in English that swiftly turned into the first copyright system by 1557, putting the kibosh on the previously more or less limitous publication trade. There was back and forth on publication rights until the Copyright Act of 1709, which pretty much acknowledged the author's right to make a living from the work and therefore create a huge boom in publication. With the increase in publication ability and the ability to make money off of writing and selling stories, the 18th century saw all sorts of genres taken over. Robinson Crusoe, published by Daniel Defoe in 1719, for example, really embraced the adventure novel. The eponymous characters struggle for survival on a tropical island created a genre that lingers well in today. Think an 18th century version of Castaway without the volleyball. Romances continued with novels like Eliza Haywood's 1719 Love in Excess, about two girls fighting over a man, and Samuel Richardson's 1740 Pamela, which told the scandalous tale of a lecherous master attempting to seduce his virtuous maid. Both plots are pretty recognizable romance novel or soap opera tropes. But more importantly, some scholars trace the start of the fantasy novel to Jonathan Swift's satirical Gulliver's Travels. Most people are at least familiar with some of the descriptive words that Swift graced the English language with, Lilliputian for small, Robin Nagian for excessively large, and Yahoo for any uncouth or rowdy person. But Gulliver's Travels, while definitely a satire on the entirety of the human race, is on the face of things a journey through fantastical worlds in the same fashion as later writers like J.R.R. Tolkien or C.S. Lewis. Another lingering 18th century genre that most people can identify with but not name is the picaresque novel. Alex, does that term mean anything to you? Yes and no. Truth be told, I had to look up the term and realized almost every movie and novel I've ever read recently has elements of the picturesque genre. Yes, it's actually any adventure story that follows the exploits of a rough-and-tumble, likely lower-class male hero whose quick wit is the only thing that saves him from facing the consequences of his actions. Henry Fielding's Tom Jones is an English example from 1749 where the reader isn't quite sure if they should actually root for the hero or not. Voltaire's 1759 Candide and Daniel Defoe's 1722 Maul Flanders are also picaresque, although the latter uses a female protagonist. The best example is much later with Mark Twain's 1884 Huckleberry Finn. Tom Sawyer is ultimately too law-abiding, or at least aunt-abiding and Becky Thatcher-fearing, to count fully as a picaro. Huck, on the other hand, tries life as a member of the society and finds it doesn't quite suit him. Although his decisions often end up with him or others in dire straits, he always seems to eke by without severe personal consequences. Unfortunately, that simply seems to reinforce his belief in his own choices, pretty much making him the epitome of the Picaro as protagonist. Can you think of any more modern versions of a Picaro? Yes, my kids have made me watch many of the Marvel movies, and most of them follow the Picaro theme. I was thinking of almost everyone in Guardians of the Galaxy movies. 
sadly, I can't remember any of the characters' names, except one is furry, one seems to be a root, one is green, and one is human. They all have Picaro traits, which makes me think Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn can be remade as a space movie. That would be highly entertaining. Toward the end of the century, we start seeing the infamous Gothic novel. Horace Walpole's 1764, The Castle of Otranto, is considered the first fully Gothic story. Here's a quote that no doubt sounds familiar from every single bodice ripper to follow. Quote, Look, my lord, see, heaven itself declares against your impious intentions. Heaven nor hell shall impede my design, said Manfred, advancing again to seize the princess. Unquote. The titillating aspects of the gothic romance, the macabre, the spooky, and the ultimately gloomy atmosphere make it an extraordinarily popular novel format, especially for those novels released as serials. The cliffhangers at the ends of segments left the audience longing for more, driving up the anticipation. Gothic romances diverged from gothic horror early on with the novels by Anne Radcliffe. Radcliffe's works like the 1790 A Sicilian Romance and The Mysteries of Adolfo, published in 1794, continued to use creepy settings and touched on the supernatural, but added in the important feature of a young female heroine undergoing trials to achieve love. Here's a quote describing the setting of the castle in Udolfo. Quote, Emily gazed with melancholy awe upon the castle, which she understood to be Montoni's. For, though it was now lighted up by the setting sun, the gothic greatness of its features and its moldering walls of dark gray stone rendered it a gloomy and sublime object. As she gazed, the light died away on its walls, leaving a melancholy purple tint, which spread deeper and deeper as the thin vapor crept up the mountain, while the battlements above were still tipped with splendor. From those two, the rays soon faded, and the whole edifice was invested with the solemn duskiness of evening. Silent, lonely, and sublime, it seemed to stand the sovereign of the scene and to frown defiance on all who dared invade its solitary reign. As the twilight deepened, its features became more awful in obscurity, and Emily continued to gaze till its clustering towers were alone seen rising over the tops of the woods, beneath whose thick shade the carriages soon after began to ascend. End quote. Radcliffe's books were so popular that not only did she get paid 500 pounds for The Mysteries of Udolpho when the average income for a novel was 10 pounds, but her successor, Jane Austen, even mentions Udolpho in her own gothic romance of Northanger Abbey, published in 1817, showing the popularity of the genre even for a more upper-class, so-called proper society, especially female society. Some of the most famous classic novels are technically Gothic romance novels, like Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte from 1847 and her sister Emily's infamous Wuthering Heights from the same year. Even Louisa May Alcott of Little Women fame dabbled in the Gothic with her short stories like Agatha's Confession in 1857. Her full-length novel, A Long and Fatal Love Chase, from 1866, was so sensational for the period that it was never printed in her lifetime. The first publication was in 1995. Gothic romances from the end of the 18th century onward played with subjects not considered fit for polite society, like lust, murder, the supernatural, and even incest. A perfect example of the kind of fascination these books held is when Catherine Moreland asks Isabella Thorpe in Northanger Abbey, quote, but are they all horrid? Are you sure they're all horrid? The response? 
Yes, quite sure, for a particular friend of mine, a Miss Andrews, a sweet girl, one of the sweetest creatures in the world, has read every one of them. End quote. Similarly, with the development of the science fiction genre, Mary Shelley wrote and published Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus, in 1818. Some people lumped Dracula in with science fiction thanks to early monster movies um, grouping Frankenstein's monster with the Count. But Bram Stoker's 1897 novel is definitely a gothic horror, showcasing the divide between the gothic romances and the gothic horror novels. And if you've ever been to Whitby Abbey, where Stoker stayed while writing it, you definitely get the full ambience of gloom and chills down your spine that the descriptions of the setting are meant to evoke. Frankenstein, on the other hand, is much more concerned with what happens when a scientist plays God, how society can or cannot accept the different or unnatural. One of the most famous quotes is, quote, I do not know that for the sympathy of one living being, I would make peace with it all. I have love in me, the likes of which you can scarcely imagine, and the rage, the likes of which you would not believe. If I cannot satisfy the one, I will indulge the other, unquote. This is such a perfect encapsulation of the human condition, and it comes from what, quite literally, an unnatural being. Another quote showcased the disdain of society for anyone different or outside of what was deemed the norm. Quote, of my creation and creator, I was absolutely ignorant, but I knew that I possessed no money, no friends, no kind of property. I was besides endured with a figure hideously deformed and loathsome. I was not even of the same nature as man. I was more agile than they, and I could subsist upon coarser diet. I bore the extremes of heat and cold with less injury to my frame. My statue far exceeded theirs. When I looked around and saw a herd of none like me, was I then a monster, a blot upon the earth from which all men fled and all whom men disowned? End quote. Let's not forget the other genre Jane Austen participated in, the society novel. Somewhat a social commentary, somewhat a romance, the majority of Austen's work has stood the test of time as successful standalone novels, even if they do tend to follow the format of the spirited young woman finding her way through social ills to find happiness and love. Alex, you had some homework to do for this section, didn't you? Yes, I hadn't read any of Austen's work. And what did you think of Persuasion? While I did enjoy the snapshot of the upper Midland woes of Regency Britain, overall, I thought the book was slow. And besides Anne, I was disgusted with all the characters in the book. Near the end of the book, the whole group was at the theater, and the politics of who was sitting next to each other in the theater and the inane conversations between all the characters, in particular Anne and her suitors, almost made my head explode in disgust. I think I put the book down there and walked away trying to clear my mind. Now, there is an element of the chivalric romance in Persuasion, as most of the male characters are captains in the Royal Navy. Think of them as knights. Jane Austen writes the captains as highly educated. One seems to read the poems of Brian and Scott. They act as ideal gentlemen, and the admiral in the book represents the perfect husband. Yet, like knights in the Middle Ages, this is a false narrative. Captains and Knights are hard men. The draconian punishment administered on Royal Navy ships at the time was awful and cruel. The decisions captains make will result in many of the men under their command being killed. Yet Austin was highly romanticized in a Royal Navy captain, just like the chivalric romance novels of the past. I was also surprised at how two of the minor characters who will end up marrying 
were first cousins, and none of the families thought this odd or wrong. Then Austin carries on the theme as one of Ann Souter's was a family member. They were both Elliot's, perhaps first or second cousins, and Ann's father and the character who sort of is the busybody, Lady Russell, were pushing for them to be married. This was a very weird time. Still, how the book ends, I thought, was was weak. And I actually am beginning to change my mind on that. I wrote this a little bit ago. Her down-on-luck friends fill in the dirt on William Elliot without the character defending himself and the so-called male hero, Captain Wentworth, making his move by writing a letter. Um, he's a successful captain of the Royal Navy, a war hero, a decisive commander, declares for his love for Anna in a very passive way. To me, that was a big disconnect to his character. So I can see some of your points there. It definitely is uh, ideal society, and that's really what a lot of these novels were made for, the society escape from what was actually happening to what would be ideal, just like a lot of women idealize the romance novel as the ideal sort of relationship. Let's just hope that nobody's thinking of Twilight when they do so. But I did once hear persuasion described as the thinking man's pride and prejudice, since it has more subtlety and more layers than the more surface level Lizzie Bennet versus Mr. Darcy entanglement. Do you think that's an accurate statement? Because even if you haven't read Pride and Prejudice, you still know the general storyline, especially given all of the modern remakes, notably Bridget Jones' Diary. Now, the comments I just said above were before I spoke to my sister, who is an English teacher and a big Jane Austen fan. It seems I missed the obvious points of the book and why it was very relatable to the present. The interactions between all the characters are very similar to dating in the modern world. And besides the cousin bits, it's very easy to identify with some of the characters in the book. Anne is a very likable character, and so is Captain Wentworth. My sister pointed out the theater sequence was very funny and very similar to the interactions that take place at any social occasion today. Think of the drama and thought process that goes into seating arrangements at a wedding reception. Now, getting back to the work as a society piece, at the same time Anne and her kin are living a very pampered life in, in Manchester, England, thousands and thousands of textile workers are living a horrible life. Quite a disconnect between the two worlds and a plug-in for our two-part history of cotton, which we recorded not too long ago. Um, however, I will compliment you, Rachel, as discussing Jane Austen has been the big topic of conversation at the museum for over a week. <laughs> I still say the persuasion is my favorite Austen. The disappointment and smallness that Anne shows after a life of giving and never getting is really relatable, I feel, a lot more than the granted enjoyable storyline of the plucky young girl who gets her man that often happens in the romance and society novels today. By the mid-19th century, pretty much any type of novel was published and avidly read. It is in this period that we start to see fewer full-length novels printed all at once, but more often episode serials published in literary magazines or other forms of periodicals. This is pretty much the same as waiting for the next episode of your favorite TV show. The earliest periodicals in the 17th and 18th centuries were often linked to masculine topics like politics or sports but did often include short stories or poems and were often found in coffee houses. Check out our previous episode, Coffee, Tea, and Chocolate, for more on that topic. 
By the end of the 18th century, there were about 100 magazines of various quality being published in America alone. By 1830, the number had increased even more with the advent of cheaper magazines called penny papers aimed at more general public, which tended to favor entertainment over news. Just like our grocery store checkout aisle magazines and tabloids today, the Saturday Evening Post tells, falls into this category, although it focused on a breadth of subjects from etiquette to international news to fiction. Many of the authors we still do today contributed to the Post, like Mark Twain, Harriet Beecher Stowe, and James Fenimore Cooper. There were periodicals of every flavor, political, commercial, black, abolitionist, and these two are actually separate categories with surprisingly different readership. Society, leisure, Native American, religious, etc. all could be found in America by the antebellum period. Because of this method of publication, we start to see the rise of the agenda-based novel. Earlier authors like Swift used to satire to mock social conditions or to provoke thought about certain elements of society. But these new agenda-based novels were provocative in their own right. Uncle Tom's Cabin, or Life Among the Lowly, published in 1852 by Harriet Beecher Stowe, is an, ex is an excellent example of the anti-slavery genre. Published as a serial over 40 weeks, the novel illustrates the evils of slavery through the trials of the characters, both white and black. It doesn't shy away from violence done to the enslaved persons or sexual abuse of young black females and the tragedy of being ripped away from one's families. The novels that tend to have the most controversy are the ones that fall into the agenda-driven category, largely because they make people face the reality of unequitable circumstances or blatant racism and sexism in their own lives. One of the pro-slavery novels written in direct reaction to Uncle Tom's Cabin, typically called anti-Tom's novels, was the 1852 novel Aunt Phyllis Cabin, of, or Southern Life As It Is, written by Mary Henderson Eastman. It told the dangerous and pervasive story of how slavery is a supposed natural state and that planters and enslaved people lived in harmony and respect. It wasn't quite as popular as Uncle Tom's Cabin, selling only one-tenth of the number of copies in total that Stowe's novel sold in its first year, but it gave rise to many similar stories designed to explain Southern slavery as a sacred institution for the betterment of all and that Northern abolitionists misunderstood the conditions and would create worse problems for supposedly miserable freemen. Volter's Candide, mentioned earlier as a picturesque novel, is also controversial and the one of the major themes challenged the philosophical idea of Latvitsian optimism, where God has given us the best of all possible worlds and everything that happens happens to create the best of all worlds. This was an exceedingly popular philosophy, but a series of catastrophic events around the world in the mid-18th century did shake its foundations a bit, especially as it's really only the upper class who always seem to maintain their best world, where everyone else is left to suffer. Voltaire actually pointed that out, however, made Candide a fairly controversial story. And now that we've caught up to the mid-19th century, there's one last genre that really takes off around 1840, the mystery novel. Edgar Allan Poe's Murders in the Rue Morgue, published in 1841, is pretty much regarded as the first modern detective story. It was published in full in Graham's Ladies and Gentlemen's magazine and introduced Monsieur Dupont as the now stereotyped, eccentric, yet brilliant detective ahead of his time. This type of story rapidly found success in cheap prints of a series of installments focusing on the more lurid aspects of murder and crime known as penny dreadfuls. 
Other more well-known authors followed suit in the second half of the 19th century, like Wilkie Collins with The Woman in White in 1859 and The Moonstone in 1868. And of course, Arthur Conan Doyle's master detective Sherlock Holmes in 1887. Of course, the novel has continued to transcend genres and captivate audiences. We have gothic mysteries, supernatural romances, supernatural gothic romantic mysteries. The combinations are endless. One only has to look at epically popular novels like Song of Ice and Fire or Outlander to see the inspiration from Gulliver's Travels and The Mysteries of Adolfo. Hmm. Actually, it seems like the modern mark of a really captivating novel isn't only the number of copies sold, but if it's turned into a TV show or movie. Definitely something Marie de France or Chaucer would have appreciated for the wider audience. So we hope you enjoyed this look through the development of fiction. No matter what genre you appreciate, we hope this episode will make you consider the origin of that beach read you picked up for summer. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to Banjo Strings and Drinking Gourds, wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. We bring you historical episodes twice a month. And if you're in the area, be sure to check out our 4th of July celebrations. We'll have Crockett's Western Battalion doing a revolutionary encampment and readings of the Declaration of Independence. Check out our website or Facebook page for more information. Thanks for listening. Thank you. And all of a sudden, I have an urge to read Robinson Crusoe.